Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mad Minute. Today, I'm speaking with Lieutenant General John N.T. Jack Shanahan, Director for Defense Intelligence under the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. Sir, welcome to the show. Pete, uh, glad to be glad to be with you for the show. So thanks for having me. No problem, sir. Um, as you're pretty familiar with the format of the Mad Minute, we try to encapsulate a lot of information into a short podcast. I'm going to go ahead and jump right in, sir. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your early years and what led to your, to your decision to join the Air Force? Well, uh, to go all the way back, it would be a love of wanting to fly airplanes as a young as a young boy. I grew up in the year 1970-71. Uh, my dad was a professor, so we were on sabbatical that year in up by the Cambridge area. Lived just out of town called Duxford, which is rather famous today for its war museum, aviation war museum, but that did not exist back then. It was just an old World War II runway with a bunch of rat-infested bunkers around it, but they had just finished uh, filming the Battle of Britain there with some scenes that had been done uh, right there on the base with some Messerschmitts and Spitfires and Hurricanes. And uh, it was one of the first movies I ever saw when it came out. It was in Duxford and decided uh, that's what I wanted to do, the love of flying. And that's what started me on the path, but a lot of things changed over the years and the the uh, desire to keep serving, to keep leading, get an opportunity to command uh, five five different times has, has kept me in. But when go back on the flying part, that's really one of the one of the motivating factors was just this uh, seeing the Battle of Britain and seeing the uh, aviation scenes and that just sparked an interest in me, which I've kept throughout my career. That's that's amazing, sir. So let's uh, let's stick with fighter planes uh, real quick. On uh, I remember one time. Um, Kind of full disclosure, I did work for Lieutenant General Shanahan for almost two years. You had said uh, to me, Pete, what do you think of the F-4? I said, sir, I love it. And we got a chuckle out of the crowd, and it sounded a little bit, um, you know, like a suck-up thing, which is fine, but we didn't have the time. I'll tell you now, the F-4 was literally, I really do love it. It was literally the first model airplane I ever built. So (laughs) along that line, do you have a favorite fighter aircraft? Well, I, I love the F-4, but uh, it had its it had its drawbacks. It was a, an old airplane by the time I started flying. Well, I say today that I started in the F-4, and, and the typical F-4, and the typical response of people, wow, you're you're kind of old. Uh, it wasn't that old, uh, so I spent uh, generally from the first nine, ten years of my career flying the F-4, uh, D, G, and E. So it was a wild weasel time when I was stationed in the 90th Attack Fighter Squadron, wild weasel squadron out in. Philippines, a really interesting mission, fascinating uh, mission of going after surface-to-air missile sites. But after uh, my time there, I went to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina and was in the 334th Fighter Squadron, the uh, uh, Eagles, the Fighting Eagles, the last squadron to convert from the F-4 to the F-15E. So I converted to the Strike Eagle in uh, the time, in my remaining time at Seymour. Yeah, I love that airplane. Whatever was not working as well as it should have in the F-4, they fixed in the F-15E. It's an incredible airplane. In fact, I have recently seen, I know he said this several times, but Chuck Yeager, who is still out on Twitter, believe it or not, some really humorous tweets, but uh, he has said if there's one airplane today that he would want to fly, he said it was the F-15E. Remarkable airplane, incredible air-to-air, air-to-ground capabilities. So I really, I really enjoyed that when I went out to the uh, Air Force uh, Weapons Instructor Course, commonly known as the Weapons School out in Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. I was uh, flying out there, went through it as a student, and then was an instructor and the director of operations. I I loved the uh, F-15E and then got out of that and then went back and flew on some heavy airplanes in my wing commander time. 
Right. And that reminds me of something I'd seen your mug a million times with your call sign. Um, how did that come about? Yeah, there's not much to that story. It doesn't seem, Shanahan doesn't seem like a very difficult last name, but as a young lieutenant, when I showed up in the 90th Pack Fighter Squadron in the Philippines, my first operational assignment is as as still as a lieutenant, second lieutenant when I first showed up. And our uh, first meeting with the director of operations, uh, just one of my role models, unfortunately, has since passed away. But uh, he, for whatever reason, just said, hey, I, don't, I can't pronounce your last name from now on. You're Shanana. And that name has uh, stayed with me ever since, although uh, not too surprising. I don't really use it that much as a general officer. Sometimes we'll just abbreviate to SHA, Shah. But, yep, Shanana. Makes sense. All right. Um, so as you were moving up, and uh, what was your first uh, assignment when you came out of uh, a flying and you started moving over towards intelligence? Well, I did. Uh, I did uh, a variety of, of different things. I was on. I was on the staff at the Air and Space Operations Center over in Korea at Seventh under Seventh Air Force, which is a really it was a really important uh, squadron in position because it was what built the air tasking order. If you're going to go fight in Korea, some things never change. Kind of going through the same process today with North Korea, but uh, that that taught me a little bit about command and control, as we say, C two. And then, uh, then from there, I went to different schools, but then ended up back on the staff at uh, Pacific Command Headquarters in, in, in Hawaii, where I was uh, working in the exercise branch. I learned a lot about joint operations and uh, just sort of how the, all the different services can work uh, famously well together when they put their minds to it. I really enjoyed that. And then uh, out of there, was supposed to go to the Pentagon and, and to the air staff, but got a call one day from my Marine uh, boss, the J-3, and said, no, you're going to command the 48th Intelligence Group. And that, that, was a, that was a surprise, to say the least, because uh, I was not an intel officer. but um, was a consumer of everything that that group uh, produced, right. you know, which has to do with targeting, imagery, point mensuration, a bunch of different things that that group was uh, well known for. So that was my first uh, assignment, commanding that, and then uh, sort of took off a life of its own. So from then to today, I've had... Some combination of uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, command and control, and flying assignments or staff assignments that take me up to the place I am today. Right. And that that leads me into, I I had some questions on leadership. I've been myself with the blog and the podcast really studying leadership a lot lately. And I thought about working under you. and, And without sounding cheesy, I could never pinpoint a leadership style to say, I just knew and uh, myself and I think the rest of the team and they would agree. And it wasn't kind of a 48 laws of power kind of fear thing, but it was just this feeling like we were inspired to try to do our best um, because we didn't want to disappoint the general. And that's definitely has to attribute to a leadership style, but it's, it wasn't something I could pinpoint. Can you elaborate kind of on leader, your thoughts on leadership and, and a leadership style? Well, the challenge with leadership is um, you always want to find uh, find it and bottle it, but it's there's, it's very hard to to find the right combination of leadership styles. And when I look back on some of the best leaders that I've ever worked for, that had the right combination of courage, discipline, accountability, um, work hard, play hard. The, they gave a lot of leeway to the people working for them, enough rope to hang yourself. And if you if you took a little bit too much rope, you were you were brought back in very quickly in terms of the accountability and discipline piece of it. But the idea of giving people the room to maneuver and providing commander's intent, as I, as I say even today, 
I like to micro understand, but macro lead. Uh, I know I want to know details, but I don't want to get and do people's jobs for them. So this idea of, as you said, some of the best leaders I've ever worked for, you didn't want to disappoint them. You can get yelled at all the time. You can brush it off because uh, you can find a reason to excuse it. But in terms of letting something down, it's a devastating feeling if you really felt like you let the boss down. So I've, I've tried to use a similar leadership style. I know I don't always get it right. And then something I've uh, plagiarized from somebody else, but the more I'm around, I'm in 30, year 33 of my career, the idea of leadership as a contact sport. You don't lead from email, you're at desk. It's uh, mixing it up with people. It's harder and harder to do in the digital age we're in, but it's essential to have that contact with people so they know what your vision is, what your objectives are, what your goal, what the mission of the organization is rather than just seeing it on email. So finding that right balance gets harder and harder the higher you go, becomes even more important. And I mean, it's legendary for it, but Secretary Mattis uh, it has all of that and more than I ever than I ever will because he inspires people to uh, to do the job. And so there's this idea of, of inspirational leadership, very hard to, to pin down exactly what that means. But I do believe in letting letting people do their jobs, but holding them accountable. And then once in a while, going back and checking to see how that organization is doing. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, kind of some of my, my thoughts and leadership philosophy. Yeah, that, that was a good segue for, uh, I was going to ask about motivating and inspiring teams. Um, but I think you kind of, that was pretty good. So let's move on a little bit in the interest of time. I know, having worked for you, you're you're kind of a tech guy, I would say, uh, Silicon Valley best practices. But uh, so, can you give us some thoughts on maybe some emerging technologies you see? I know we, uh, in the past you've talked a lot about big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence. So I guess without diving too deep in the weeds, just some some of your thoughts on on where technology is going. Well, we're at, we're at one of those epical moments in in history where this. In surfing terms, the wave is building and it's big, and we can either get crushed by it and buried underwater, or we miss the wave entirely. So we're trying to figure out on artificial intelligence, how do we get the Department of Defense to catch the wave at the right time at the right place? So I'm in charge of a pretty big project uh, working on how to integrate some elements of artificial intelligence, specifically computer vision and uh, deep learning, machine learning, into automating and or augmenting exploitation of, of full motion video for unmanned aerial vehicles. That's the beginning. And this is a, we picked a specific problem. Everybody we talked to in Silicon Valley or those that are in big universities that, that do a lot of AI said, find a problem, a narrow problem, deliver success with it, and then everything else will take off. So this is a pilot project and accelerant for the Department of Defense. We have a long way to go. I don't claim to be an expert, but I'm learning, I'm spending a lot of time trying to learn about artificial intelligence and uh, where we're going, where the department needs to go with it. And I have, of course, as you know, an incredible team uh, led by a Marine a Colonel who is making this happen. It's not me. I give him all the room to go, and he's uh, his remarkable results that we have. So that's where we are right now. We, uh, we know the department needs to do it. The department is years behind industry in this year. It's just it's not even it's not even comparable to say where industry is versus where we are in terms of Silicon Valley. But we're trying, and uh, we're going to deliver results by the end of this year to to some more fighter capabilities. And I expect the department will really begin to take these capabilities on with gusto after that. Yes, sir. Along those lines, though, um, 
Are there any kind of websites or blogs that you find particularly useful for staying current on those topics? Um, I follow uh, I'm probably up to 200 and almost 250 on Twitter that I follow of all types of, from everything from sports recreation to artificial intelligence. So without, without getting too specific, there are quite a bit. And, and on the blog side, there are a number of really good sites having to do with, with war and warfare strategy strategy bridge war on the rocks i mean there's a number of those that uh, it's just excellent reading because we have some some young young people out there that are writing some uh, fascinating uh, stories blogs posts social media posts about strategy war and warfare so i i follow quite a bit and just trying to keep uh, my my finger on the pulse of, of what's out there and uh, learn quite a bit and usually they point me to a few more links and i get to go a little deeper into some of these high-tech capabilities. Right. And on that note, with a lot of reading, uh, a question of books, um, what have you read recently? Is there anything that you found uh, particularly good, either in the tech arena or in a geopolitical context that you'd recommend? Yeah, I, sometimes it's a little hard to, to catch up on my reading, so I tend to go in, uh, in little spurts. But uh, looking at the ones I've read in the past uh, probably six months, Kissinger's book on China was... Uh, a fascinating uh, look at at the Pacific and, and China. Uh, one on the tech that combines the tech with almost a philosophical approach to artificial intelligence is Gary Kasparov's deep thinking about when he got beat by by a deep blue, and as he's thinking about human machine teaming. Now it's just it really is an interesting book, and uh, he's still very active out there. And, and I think he's about to pick up chess again here in about a week. Um, Walter Isaacson's The Innovators about the really how Silicon Valley got started, how innovation took off, how you had this this right combination of, of relationships between industry, academia, and the military, not a military industrial complex, but really core deep innovation by a small group of people that sparked the beginning of, of Silicon Valley. Uh, Destined for War, Graham Allison's latest book, which is again, uh, uh, really uh, deep insights into uh, the Thucydides trap and, and what the U.S. relationship with China would be. And then uh, a little bit a while ago, I finished Hamilton by Chernow, which is just, I mean, you talk about an amazing individual, and there's a reason the play has done so well, because the story is, uh, is just, it's one of a kind. I mean, Hamilton is a founding father and, and really helped drive so much of, of our country's position today. So those are the ones that I've read uh, within the last six months. Right, right. Outstanding. So um, usually I, uh, with other guests, I'll wrap up the Mad Minute with a, uh, a fun question on a superpower or what have you. But today, sir, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to say if you had like one, one small piece of advice to any uh, young man or woman who's serving today that's looking to make a career out of the military, what would that be? Well, at its core, it would be something on the, along the lines of public service still matters, and it matters greatly. Uh, you won't get rich serving in the military, um, serving in the government, serving in the Peace Corps, but there is this idea of service to one's country, and it's, it seems uh, sometimes a bumper sticker or a cliche, but it's what's kept me going for, for an awful long time. So for young people who has a tendency in today's world to get a little jaded, to get a little down, to figure out or to, to question why, why they would serve um, for not really that much money and in a time of tumult that we have in our government right now, maybe question 
where our country is headed. But uh, to have an effect on, on government or the military or any kind of public service, yeah, I would I would encourage people to stay with it because over time you'll be surprised how much of a difference you can make. Right. That that was a very valuable conversation. I'd like to thank you for being on the podcast, sir. Well, you're welcome, Pete. I'm glad I was able to chat with you and uh, good luck.